Chapter Four of the Mysterious Key and What It Opened by Louisa May Alcott. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four Vanished. He's a handsome lad, and one any woman might be proud to call her son," said Hester to Bedford, the stately butler, as they lingered at the hall door one autumn morning to watch their young lady's departure on her daily ride. "You are right, Mrs. Hester. He's a fine lad, and yet he seems above his place." though he does look the very picture of a lady's groom, replied Bedford approvingly. So he did, as he stood holding the white pony of his little mistress, for the boy gave an air to whatever he wore, and looked like a gentleman even in his livery. The dark blue coat with silver buttons, the silver band about his hat, his white-topped boots and bright spurs, spotless gloves and tightly drawn belt, were all in perfect order, all becoming, and his handsome dark face caused many a susceptible mind to blush and simper as they passed him. Gentleman Paul, as the servants called him, was rather lofty and reserved among his mates, but they liked him none the less, for Hester had dropped hints of his story, and quite a little romance sprung up about him. He stood leaning against the docile creature, sunk in thought, and quite unconscious of the watchers and whisperers close by. But as Lillian appeared, he woke up, attended his duties like a well-trained groom, and lingered over his task as if he liked it. Down the avenue he rode behind her, but as they turned into a shady lane, Lillian beckoned, saying, in the imperious tone habitual to her, "'Ride near me. I wish to talk.' Paul obeyed, and amused her with the chat she liked till they reached the hazel copse. Here he drew rein, and, leaping down, gathered a handful of ripe nuts for her. "'How nice! Let us rest here a minute, and while I eat a few, please pull some of those flowers for Mamma. She likes a wild nosegay better than any I can bring her from the garden.' Lillian ate her nuts till Paul came to her with a hatful of late flowers, and, standing by her, held the impromptu basket while she made up a bouquet to suit her taste. "'You shall have a posy, too. I'd like you to wear one in your buttonhole as the ladies' grooms do in the park,' said the child, setting a scarlet poppy in the blue coat. "'Thanks, Mr. Lillian. I'll wear your colours with all my heart, especially to-day, for it is my birthday.' And Paul looked up at the blooming little face with unusual softness in his keen blue eyes. "'Is it? Why, then, you're seventeen. Almost a man, aren't you?' "'Yes, thank heaven,' muttered the boy, half to himself. "'I wish I was old. I shan't be in my teens till autumn.' I must give you something, Paul, because I like you very much, and you are always doing kind things for me. What shall it be? And the child held out her hand with a cordial look and gesture that touched the boy. With one of the foreign fashions which sometimes appeared when he forgot himself, he kissed the small hand, saying impulsively, My dear little mistress, I want nothing but your good will. And your forgiveness, he added under his breath. You have that already, Paul and I shall find something to add to it. But what is that? And she laid hold of a little locket which had slipped into sight as Paul bent forward in his salute. He thrust it back, colouring so deeply that the child observed it, and exclaimed with a mischievous laugh, It's your sweetheart, Paul. I heard Bessie, my maid, tell Hester she was sure you had one, because you took no notice of them. Let me see it. Is she pretty? Very pretty, answered the boy, without showing the picture. "'Do you like her very much?' questioned Lillian, getting interested in the little romance. "'Very much,' and Paul's black eyelashes fell. "'Would you die for her, 
as they say in the old songs? asked the girl melodramatically. Yes, Miss Lillian, or live for her, which is harder. Dear me, how very nice it must be to have anyone care for one so much, said the child innocently. I wonder if anybody ever will for me. Love comes to all soon or late, and maketh gay or sad, for every bird will find its mate, and every lass a lad, sang Paul, quoting one of Hester's songs, and looking relieved that Lillian's thoughts had strayed from him. But he was mistaken. "'Shall you marry this sweetheart of yours some day?' asked Lillian, turning to him with a curious yet wistful look. "'Perhaps.' "'You look as if there was no perhaps about it,' said the child, quick to read the kindling of the eye and the change in the voice that accompanied the boy's reply. "'She is very young, and I must wait, and while I wait many things may happen to part us. "'Is she a lady?' "'Yes, a well-born, lovely little lady, and I'll marry her if I live.' Paul spoke with a look of decision, and a proud lift of the head that contrasted curiously with the badge of servitude he wore. Lillian felt this, and asked, with a sudden shyness coming over her, "'But you are a gentleman, and so no one will mind, even if you are not rich.' "'How do you know what I am?' he asked quickly. "'I heard Hester tell the housekeeper that you were not what you seemed.' and one day she hoped you'd get your right place again. I asked Mamma about it, and she said she would not let me be with you so much if you were not a fit companion for me. I was not to speak of it, but she means to be your friend, and help you by and by. Does she? And the boy laughed an odd short laugh that jarred on Lillian's ear, and made her say reprovingly, You are proud, I know, but you'll let us help you because we like to do it and I have no brother to share my money with. "'Would you like one, or a sister?' asked Paul, looking straight into her face with his piercing eyes. "'Yes, indeed. I long for someone to be with me and love me as Mamma can't. Would you be willing to share everything with another person? Perhaps have to give them a great many things you like, and now have all to yourself?' "'I think I should. I'm selfish, I know, because every one pets and spoils me. But if I loved a person dearly. I'd give up anything to them. Indeed I would. Paul, pray believe me. She spoke earnestly and leaned on his shoulder as if to enforce her words. The boy's arm stole around the little figure in the saddle, and a beautiful smile broke over his face, and he answered warmly, I do believe it, dear, and it makes me happy to hear you say so. Don't be afraid. I'm your equal. Tell not forget that you are my little mistress till I can change from groom to gentleman. He added the last sentence as he withdrew his arm, for Lillian had shrunk a little and blushed with surprise, not anger, at this first breach of respect on the part of her companion. Both were silent for a moment, Paul looking down and Lillian busy with her nosegay. She spoke first, assuming an air of satisfaction as she surveyed her work. "'That will please Mamma, I'm sure, and make her quite forget my naughty prank of yesterday.' Do you know I offend her dreadfully by peeping into the gold case she wears on her neck? She was asleep, and I was sitting by her. In her sleep she pulled it out and said something about a letter, and Papa. I wanted to see Papa's face, for I never did, because the big picture of him is gone from the gallery where the others are. So I peeped into the case, when she let it drop, and was so disappointed to find nothing but a key. A key? What sort of a key? cried Paul in an eager tone. Oh, little silver one, like, 
the key on my piano, or the black cabinet. She woke and was very angry to find me meddling. What did it belong to? asked Paul. Her treasure box, she said, but I don't know where it is or what that is, and I dare not ask any more, for she forbade me speaking to her about it. Poor mamma, I'm always troubling her in some way or other. With a penitent sigh, Lillian tied up her flowers and handed them to Paul to carry. As she did so, the change in his face struck her. "'How grim and old you look!' she exclaimed. "'Have I said anything that troubles you?' "'No, Miss Lillian. I am only thinking.' "'Then I wish you wouldn't think, for you get a great wrinkle in your forehead, your eyes grow almost black, and your mouth looks fierce. You are a very odd person, Paul. One minute as gay as any boy, and the next as grave and stern as a man with a deal of work to do.' I have got a deal of work to do, so no wonder I look old and grim. What work, Paul? To make my fortune and win my lady. When Paul spoke in that tone and wore that look, Lillian felt as if they had changed places, and he was the master and she was the servant. She wandered over this in her childish mind, but proud and willful as she was, she liked it, and obeyed him with unusual meekness, when he suggested that it was time to return. As he rode silently beside her, she stole covert glances at him from under her wide hat-brim, and studied his unconscious face, as she had never done before. His lips moved now and then, but uttered no audible sound. His black brows were knit, and once his hand went to his breast as if he thought of the little sweetheart whose picture lay there. He's got a trouble. I wish he'd tell me and let me help him if I can. I'll make him show— me that miniature some day, for I am interested in that girl," thought Lillian, with a pensive sigh. As he held his hand for her little foot in dismounting her at the hall door, Paul seemed to have shaken off his grave mood, for he looked up and smiled at her with his blithest expression. But Lillian appeared to be the thoughtful one now, and with an air of dignity very pretty and becoming, thanked her young squire in a stately manner and swept into the house, looking tall and womanly in her flowing skirts. Paul laughed as he glanced after her, and flinging himself on to his horse, rode away to the stables at a reckless pace, as if to work off some emotion for which he could find no other vent. "'Here's a letter for you, lad, all the way from some place in Italy. Who do you know there?' said Bedford as the boy came back. With a hasty thank you, Paul caught the letter and darted away to his own room there to tear it open, and after reading a single line, to drop into a chair as if he had received a sudden blow. Growing paler and paler, he read on, and when the letter fell from his hands, he exclaimed in a tone of despair, "'How could he die at such a time?' For an hour the boy sat thinking intently, with locked door, curtained window, and several papers strewn before him. Letters, memoranda, plans, drawings and bits of parchment, all of which he took from a small locked portfolio, always worn about him. Over these he pored with a face in which hope, despondency, resolve, and regret alternated rapidly. Taking the locket out, he examined a ring which lay in one side, and a childish face which smiled on him from the other. His eyes filled as he looked and put it by, saying tenderly, "'Dear little heart, I'll not forget or desert her, whatever happens.' Time must help me, and to time I must leave my work. One more attempt, and then I'm off. I'll go to bed now, Hester, but while you get my things ready I'll take a turn in the corridor. The air will refresh me. 
As she spoke, Lady Trevlyn drew her wrapper about her, and paced softly down the long hall, lighted only by fitful gleams of moonlight and the ruddy glow of the fire. At the far end was a state chamber never used now, and never visited except by Hester, who occasionally went in to dust and air it, and my lady, who always passed the anniversary of Sir Richard's death alone there. The gallery was very dark, and she seldom went farther than the glass window in her restless walks but as she now approached she was startled to see a streak of yellow light under the door. She kept the key herself, and neither she nor Hester had been there that day. A cold shiver passed over her, for as she looked the shadow of a foot darkened the light for a moment, and vanished as if someone had noiselessly passed. Obeying a sudden impulse, my lady sprang forward and tried to open the door. It was locked, but as her hand turned the silver knob, a sound as if a drawer softly closed met her ear. She stooped to the keyhole, but it was dark, a key evidently being in the lock. She drew back and flew to her room, snatched the key from her dressing-table, and bidding Hester follow, returned to the hall. "'What is it, my lady?' cried the woman, alarmed at the agitation of her mistress. "'A light, a sound, a shadow in the state chamber. Come quick!' cried Lady Trevlyn, adding, as she pointed to the door, "'There, there, the light shines underneath. Do you see it?' "'No, my lady, it is dark,' returned Hester. It was, but never pausing, my lady thrust in the key, and to her surprise it turned, the door flew open, and the dim, still room was before them. Hester boldly entered, and while her mistress slowly followed, she searched the room, looking behind the tall screen by the hearth, up the wide chimney, in the great wardrobe, and under the ebony cabinet, where all the relics of Sir Richard were kept. Nothing appeared, not even a mouth, and Hester turned to my lady with an air of relief. But her mistress pointed to the bed shrouded in dark velvet hangings, and whispered breathlessly, "'You forgot to look there.' Hester had not forgotten, but in spite of her courage and good sense, she shrank a little from looking at the spot where she had last seen her master's dead face. She believed the light and sound to be phantoms of my lady's distempered fancy, and searched merely to satisfy her. The mystery of Sir Richard's death still haunted the minds of all who remembered it, and even Hester felt a superstitious dread of that room. With a nervous laugh she looked under the bed, and drawing back the heavy curtain, said soothingly, "'You see, my lady, there's nothing there.' But the words died on her lips, as the pale glimmer of the candle pierced the gloom of that funeral couch. Both saw a face upon the pillow. A pale face framed in dark hair and beard, with closed eyes and a stony look the dead wear. A loud, long shriek that roused the house broke from Lady Trevlyn as she fell senseless at the bedside, and dropping both curtain and candle, Hester caught up her mistress, and fled from the haunted room, locking the door behind her. In a moment a dozen servants were about them, and into their astonished ears Hester poured her story, while vainly trying to restore her lady. Great was the dismay and intense the unwillingness of any one to obey, when Hester ordered the men to search the room again, for she was the first to regain her self-possession. "'Where's Paul?' He's the heart of a man, boy though he is, she said angrily as the men hung back. He's not here. Lord, maybe it was him a plain tricks, though it ain't like him, cried Bessie, Lillian's little maid. No, it can't be him, for I locked him in myself. He walks in his sleep sometimes, and I was afraid he'd startle my lady. Let him sleep. This would only excite him and set him to marching again. 
Follow me, Bedford and James. I am not afraid of ghosts or rogues. With a face that belied her words, Hester led the way to the awful room, and flinging back the curtain, resolutely looked in. The bed was empty, but on the pillow was plainly visible the mark of a head and a single scarlet stain as if of blood. At that sight Hester turned pale and caught the butler's arm, whispering with a shudder, Do you remember the night we put him in his coffin? The drop of blood that fell from his white lips? Sir Richard has been here. Good Lord, ma'am, don't say that. We can never rest in our beds if such things are to happen, gasped Bedford, backing to the door. It's no use to look. We've found what we shall find, so go your ways and tell no one of this, said the woman in a gloomy tone and having assured herself that the windows were fast, Hester locked the room and ordered everyone but Bedford and the housekeeper to bed. "'Do you sit outside my lady's door till morning,' she said to the butler. "'And you, Mrs. Price, help me to tend my poor lady, for if I am not mistaken, this night's work will bring on the old trouble.' Morning came, and with it a new alarm, for though his door was fast locked, and no foothold for even a sparrow outside the window, Paul's room was empty and the boy nowhere to be found. End of chapter 4 Recording by Ashley Jane